Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for the blessings you've given to each one of us. We pray that we would always serve you. We would always strive to do your will, that we would never deviate from your truth, that the calling that we've received, that we would remain true to. Father, we pray that your blessings would be upon those here, be upon all those worshiping you in spirit and truth elsewhere. Father, we give you praise now, and we ask that you, again, you would be here always, and you would guide this ministry, and we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Amen. You may all be seated. And uh, for those who missed the instructions, by the way, for Paul Everywhere, I'll review that near the end. So we'll make sure everyone has the opportunity to uh, participate. So I would encourage everybody to uh, maybe take some notes. There will be uh, some very specific questions near the, uh, the end here. So when it comes to the uh, relationship between the father and son, there are many, many competing views, but really none greater than the Trinity, and that's by far the most popular, and something called oneness. While the Trinity dominates most of Christianity, uh, oneness is more common within the Messianic believers. Today I want to focus on the oneness teaching. We will reference the Trinity just a few times, but I'm going to review the following here. We're going to review some uh, ancient beliefs that are related to oneness, and this would include modalism and monarchianism. We're also going to review some of the more recent history of oneness, modern history, when it arose. We're going to consider some of the uh, arguments for oneness, and lastly, we're going to share some evidence showing the father and son of their indeed separate beings. Now, why does it matter whether we believe in the Trinity, oneness, or some other view of the father and son? Well, here's an example. Yahshua the Messiah on more than one occasion, said that the Father was greater than him. When it comes to the relationship between the Father and Son, it is crucial that we understand how that works. There are many more examples like this, the Father and Son, the Father being greater, and we'll see some throughout this message near the end. I want to begin today by talking about modalism. What is modalism? Or modalism is a precursor to oneness. So we're going to talk about modalism, explain this. So here's a uh, reference. This is from the uh, book entitled Systematic Theology. If you're needing some sleep, it's a great book to read. (laughs) It reviews all the major theologies from the beginning of the church. It's by Wayne Gruden. And uh, here's what it says. Modalism claims that there is one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. And that's where this term comes from, modalism. At various times, people have taught that G.O.D. is not really three distinct persons, but only one person who appears to people in different modes or at different times. For example, in the Old Testament, G.O.D. appeared as Father. Throughout the Gospels, the same divine person appeared as the Son, As seen in the human life and ministry of G.C., after Pentecost, this same person then revealed himself as the, quote, spirit active in the church. This teaching is also referred to by uh, by two other names. Sometimes it is called 
Sibylism, after a teacher called a Sibylus, who lived in Rome in the early 3rd century A.D. Another term for modalism is modalistic monarchianism, because his teaching not only says that G.O.D. revealed himself in different modes, but it also says that there is only one supreme ruler monarch in the universe, and that is G.O.D. himself, who consists of only one person. So this is modalism. We see here that modalism believes that there is only one G.O.D., so that is consistent in some ways with the Trinity, but it says here that not in three different forms, or three different persons, or three different personalities, I should say, but in three different forms or modes. Based on this belief, G.O.D. appeared as the father in the Old Testament, the son in the Evangels, and after Pentecost as the Holy Spirit. But again, one G.O.D., one deity, one mighty one. We also see here that this belief is known as Sabellanism, after a man named Sabellus who lived in the 3rd century, so this is when this belief became popular. According to Wikipedia, here's what it says about this Sabellus. It says, Sabellus taught that G.O.D. was a single and indivisible with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being three modes or manifestations of one divine person. A Sabellan modalist would say that the one G.O.D. successfully revealed himself to man throughout time as the Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and the Spirit in sanctification and regeneration. So again, that is modalism. Yahweh, or as they would say, G.O.D., appeared in three different modes throughout the history of mankind, with the Father being the first. Now, how does modalism differ from the Trinity? How does modalism differ from the Trinity? Or the Trinity says that there is only one G.O.D., so they both agree on that point. But where they differ is the Trinity also says that there are three different personalities. Three different personalities. Modalism would reject this. Modalism would say that, no, there are not three different personalities, that there are three different modes, which would appear in different times. Also, the Trinity would say that all three are co-eternal, co-equal, and consubstantial, or of the same substance. So that is the difference between the Trinity and oneness, mainly being, again, that the Trinity would say three personalities, and oneness would say strictly no, it would be one G.O.D., simply in three different modes throughout different time. For this reason, modalism was rejected by many, and certainly by all those who would believe in the Trinity. It was deemed heretical. So here's a uh, graphic showing how modalism works. It's fairly simple. So you have one singular G.O.D., right? You have the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the Evangels, and from Acts or Acts 2, Pentecost, they would say that then to the present day is the Holy Spirit. So that is modalism. One G.O.D., one mighty one, one divinity. But three different modes as we find. Now, let's now talk about monarchianism. Kind of these terms are a little bit strange. Modalism, monarchianism. So what is monarchianism? Or here's what we learn about mon monarchianism from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, monarchianism and Christianity, a Christological position that opposed the doctrine of an independent personal subsistence of the Logos and affirmed the sole deity of G.O.D., the Father. So again, 
the thrust or the concept here is that there is only one deity. There is only one G-O-D, unlike the Trinity. Thus, it may rep- it, thus, it represented the extreme monotheistic view. Extreme because literally there was only one deity. There was no room for three different personalities, three separate beings in any sense. It was one, one deity, one, one G-O-D. Though it regarded J.C. as redeemer, it clung to the numerical unity of the deity. Two types of monarchianism developed, the dynamic or adoptionist and the modalistic or stabilism. Monarchianism emerged during the second century and circulated into the third century. It was generally regarded as a heresy by the mainstream of Christian theology after the fourth century. So once the Trinity took root, which we know that's when it took root, the concept of modalism, Arianism, and all the other isms were deemed heretical by the church. Moving forward, it goes on to say, dynamic monarchianism held that Messiah was a mere man. So dynamic, again, is this adoptionist. He was just a mere man. Miraculously conceived, but constituted the son of G.O.D. simply by the infinitely high degree in which he had been filled with divine wisdom and power. So he was adopted essentially by his great, great demeanor and great life. Modalistic monarchianism took exception to the subordinationism of some of the church fathers and maintained that the names father and son were only different designations of the same subject, the one G.O.D., who, with reference to the relations in which he had previously stood to the world, is called the father, but in reference to his appearance in humanity is called the son. So we see here monarchianism, defined again by the Encyclopedia Britannica. It originated in the 2nd century, 3rd century. In essence, it was a form of modalism. The only difference is it placed more emphasis on the father as the monarch or the single ruler, the G.O.D. In fact, there were two types of monarchianism, as we read here. The first is dynamic, and the second is modalistic. Dynamic, again, is called adoptionist. What are the differences between the two? Or dynamic, again, called adoptionist, believed that the son was, always, was not always present, that the son was not always present or within this modalistic environment that the son came into being after being miraculously born and living such a great life that he became part of this, this oneness relationship. So again, that was dynamic, adoptionist, monarchianism, again, part of a modalistic viewpoint. It said again in Britannica, but constituted the son of G.O.D. simply by infinitely high degree in which he had been filled with divine wisdom and power. For this reason, many viewed dynamic monarchianism, the sun in this sense, as inferior, and this did not set well with many believers, even though scripture shows that he is inferior. Just as a side note, Arius believed the same thing, and that was uh, deemed heretical for this cause as well. So I want to, now let's uh, delve into the uh, modern history. I'm going to refer to uh, Wikipedia on this. It says the oneness Pentecostal movement. So oneness is, again, from the charismatic sect of Christianity. 
says the oneness Pentecostal movement is considered to have begun in 1914. And by the way, many Messianic assemblies today, they emerged from the charismatic movement. Not all, but some, many of them. And this is why we see within many uh, Messianic assemblies, they've adopted or continued with this oneness theology. says it begun in 1914 as a result of severe doctrinal disputes within the nascent Pentecostal movement. During these formative years, doctrinal division developed and widened over traditional Trinitarian theology and the formula used at baptism, with some Pentecostal leaders claiming revelation or other insights pointing them toward the oneness concept. Pentecostals quickly split along these doctrinal lines. Those who held to the belief in the Trinity and the Trinitarian baptismal formula condemned the oneness teaching as heresy. On the other hand, those who rejected the Trinity as being contrary to the Bible in a form of polytheism, so notice that, they went so far as to viewing the Trinity as a form of polytheism, which really it is when you think about it. Nominations and institutions, which ultimately developed into the oneness churches of today. So we find here that the oneness Pentecostal movement developed in 1914. That's a date you may, might want to remember. Now, oneness belief is very similar to modalism. Many will say that, again, modalism is the foundation of the modern oneness theology. Oneness strictly teaches that there is only one G.O.D. between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, like modalism, they reject this concept that there are three different persons or personalities, as we find with the Trinity. We also see here that the current oneness doctrine began over a dispute with the baptismal formula, as we find in Matthew 28, 19. You might want to remember that. Even though Matthew 20, 19 shows baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they noticed that baptisms were only done in the singular name of the Messiah. Because of this, some were coined within this movement as Jesus only, because, again, they rejected this concept of baptism into the names or name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's also important to note here that many viewed the Trinity as a form of polytheism. Mentioned that already, but it's an important point to make. I want to move on now and consider some of the some of the reasons why people believe this, some of the support that they use. I'm going to use an article today. This is from uh, thereforegodexists.com, and it brings out ten points, ten points or ten proofs for the oneness belief. And we're going to do our very best to debunk those beliefs today. I want to begin with a passage that most Trinitarians would use, and uh, oneness as well, and that is John 1.1. 1, 1. So it says there, and I'm going to read just as it has it within the article. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was G-O-D, and the word, wa- the word was with G-O-D, and the word was G-O-D. So the, here's how this article explains this passage. It says, a plainest interpretation of this passage is just to say that the word J-C is G-O-D. Jehovah's Witnesses translate this, the word was a G-O-D. There are obviously grammatical problems with this translation, which I will not get into. But the most significant problem is that if 
JC was merely a G.O.D., that would mean that the jealous G.O.D. of Israel wanted us to take another G.O.D. before him. Since idolatry was a sin, we are left with the only conclusion that J.C. is G.O.D. It's kind of confusing if you ask me. As, again, many would do, they will use this passage to support either Trinity or Oneness. The reason they both refer to John 1.1 is that they believe this refers and proves that there is only one G.O.D. The main distinction comes in how they explain, again, the differences between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, between the three personalities. But here, they will both say that this passage proves that there is only one G.O.D. The word G.O.D. here, the word God here, comes from the Greek theos. It's so important we understand theos and what theos means. Now, theos, as we know, is related to the Hebrew Elohim. The word theos is very broad in meaning. In fact, Strong's defines theos as, quote, a deity, especially the supreme divinity, figuratively a magistrate, by Hebrewism very. So we see the meaning here of theos, and it says a deity, a deity. Deity would be like an Elohim or a G-O-D, as some might say. It also includes the supreme divinity, or this would be Yahweh. But notice, it's one of three definitions, because it also says theos can be rendered as magistrate. Magistrate, so someone in a human, uh, in a, in a, um, human position. Now, we find a similar definition from, uh, uh, from Strong's for Elohim. And again, Strong's, or Theos, corresponds to Elohim. It says, plural of Old Testament 4.33, says um, God's in the ordinary sense, but specifically used to the supreme G.O.D., occasionally applied by way of deference to magistrates. So this is almost identical to the definition for Theos. So Theos and Elohim very much correspond to the other. We see that both Theos and Elohim are somewhat broad in meaning. They both refer to a deity first. They both can refer to the divinity or to Yahweh. And they can both refer to a magistrate or to a person in a high position. We also know from the word, from the Hebrew, that Elohim can also refer to false mighty ones. It can refer to angels. And it can refer to mankind. So again, very broad in meaning. Now, in this instance, we agree with how the JWs would understand this passage. This is simply saying here that Yahshua was a mighty one, that he was a theos, that he was a deity, that he existed with the Father as as a mighty one, as an Elohim, as a theos, but not as one G.O.D. There is nothing here that substantiates this concept of oneness, of this concept that Yahweh and Yahshua, the Father and Son, are the same being. Now, we have a pretty good study note on this I wanted to share in the Restoration Study Bible. So it says there in the study note, the word refers to the preexistent Messiah. John confirms, quote, in the beginning was the Messiah, and the Messiah was with Yahweh, and the Messiah was a mighty one. So just as we find from the JWs, we also share that view. He was a theos. And again, remember that theos, the first definition is a deity. 
And then the second definition is the divinity, the divinity. But first and foremost, it is a deity. And, and simply a deity is a mighty one. The Greek dialect, uh, diglot clarifies by saying a mighty one was the word. The complete Bible and American standard tra- uh, reads in the beginning, the word existed. The word was with Elohim and the word was divine. Same thing. Theos, a divinity. Elohim is generic for mighty ones. In the Old Testament, this word applied to Yahweh, false deities, angels, and to man. In the context of this passage, Elohim refers to both the Father and Son, but separately, depending on the context. So that is the note as we have it within the Restoration Study Bible. Let's move on now to our second example we uh, see in this article. So the second example we list is John 20, verse 28. And again, I'm going to read it just as he has it here. It says there, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, or my L-O-R-D and my G-O-D. So here's how he explains this. He says, after J.C. rose from the dead, Thomas said that he refused to believe that he really had risen until he could feel the wounds on his hands. And we all remember, remember that story. So J.C. allowed him to allowed him to, and then he believed and cried out what he, we find here, my L-O-R-D and my G-O-D. Thomas told J.C. that he was his G-O-D, and J.C. did not rebuke him. All of the great prophets and even angels quickly and sternly rebuke men when they call them G-O-D, but J.C. did not. Again, this is the same reasoning as before. The word G-O-D comes from the Greek theos, and again, theos simply refers to a deity, a mighty one of some sort. Also, the word Lord here, this is from the Greek curious. So we have theos, now we have curious. Strong's defines curious as from keros, supremacy, supreme in authority. That is controlled by implication, mister, as a respectful title. So we find again, as we found with Theos, that curious to is very broad in meaning. It can mean and refer to Yahweh, but it can also refer to simply someone in a position of authority. Now here's what it says in Thayer's. Thayer's breaks us down a bit further. Thayer says, he to whom a person or thing belongs about which he has power of deciding master lord, the possessor or disposer of things, the owner one who has control of the person, the master, in the state, the sovereign prince, chief, the Roman emperor. So we see that all these positions would be defined as curious, would be defined as a position of authority. This word does not always refer to Yahweh, and that's the problem. Many people, they see G-O-D, they see L-O-R-D, and they believe automatically this must refer to the Father. This is not so based on the Hebrew and the Greek. The Hebrew and the Greek are more broad in meaning. And the Hebrew and the Greek provides interpretations beyond just the supreme divinity or the Father as we would, or Yahweh as we would know today. Now it goes on to say, is a title of honor expressive of respect and reverence with which servants salute their masters. And again, that's curious. And lastly, it says this title is given to G.O.D. the Messiah. As Elohim and Atheos are related, we also find a relationship between curious Curios is, is, corresponds or is related to Adonai, Adonai. So Adonai and Curios are equivalent. 
Theos and Elohim are equivalent. And both Kyrios and Adonai refer to a person or a being in a position of authority. So that is what we find here from Stephen, or Thomas, I should say, sorry. Thomas here is simply acknowledging that the Messiah was both a mighty one and was in a position of authority. This passage is not showing or providing evidence, though, that they are the same as this author claims. Well, let's look at the another passage he provides, and this is from Romans 10, verse 13. So there in Romans 10, 13, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the LORD will be saved. He explains this in this way. He says, what is interesting about this passage is that Paul is clearly referring to J.C., but he is quoting an Old Testament passage that refers to G.O.D. He was clearly using a very clever way to indicate the deity of Christ. The apostles do this numerous times. A few examples of this phenomenon, Romans 10.13, compare against Joel 2.23, 1 Corinthians 1.31, compare against Jeremiah 9, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, compare against Isaiah 40.13, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 26, compared against Psalms 24, verse 1, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 17, compared against Jeremiah 9, verse 24. So let's look at the reasoning that he provides here. There are two flaws with this reasoning. Number one, just because Yahshua is without the, uh, this does not specifically pertain to Yahshua in the Old Testament, we can see it applies to him in the New. Paul here is using an Old Testament passage and applying it to the Son. In the Old Testament, it does refer to Yahweh here. It seems to refer to the Son. But this does not prove that they are the same G-O-D, that they are the same divinity. What we find here is, very, is, is simply this. Salvation is found in both the names of Yahweh and Yahshua. That's all we find here that both names bring salvation. We see an example of this with Yahshua's name also in Acts verse 4.12. It says there that there is, no, there is salvation in no other name. And we know the context there is the name of Yahshua or Yahshua. You know, it's also important to remember that Yahshua's name literally means Yahweh is salvation. The name of our Savior literally means Yahweh is salvation. It, it, it contains the name of the Father. So in their own unique ways, we find that we find salvation through both the Father and the Son. But again, this does not mean that they're the same being, that they, that they, are, they are the same divinity. It simply shows that as salvation is found in Yahweh's name, and we know it is, we also find here that salvation is also found in the name of our Savior. That's all we find. Again, not proving that there is some sort of oneness relationship between the Father and Son. We also offers John 8, verse 46 as evidence for oneness. It says there, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? So this is Yahshua speaking, of course. And here's how this man explains this passage. He says, J.C. argued that he was not guilty of sin. Or well, at that point, I think we can all agree. 
and that they could not prove him to be guilty of sin. Again, I think we would agree. For good measure, the Bible makes it very clear that J.C. was without sin, or we've established that. The following scriptures do indicate that J.C. is, in fact, good. Now, here's where this man deviates. The issue was, or the context is, he is without sin. Or now we're speaking about the fact that he is good. And he makes this gymnastic, mental gymnastic leap in defining good. And I'll just read it. I'm going to skip the verses. You can read those. But he says, this is significant because the Bible teaches us that G.O.D. alone is good. But if G.O.D. alone is good and J.C. is good, it follows logically and inescapably that J.C. is G.O.D. Now, it doesn't say here that Yash was good. Somehow this man deviated from the topic and makes this claim that because Yahshua is good, that he must be G-O-D. It doesn't say that here. What it says here is that Yahshua is without sin. Where number one, just because Yahshua is without sin does not make him equal or the same G-O-D or the same divinity as the Father. Number two, it was Yahshua in Luke 18 verse 19 who said that no man was good but the Father only. So if Yahshua said that no man was good but the Father only... Or he's including himself within that equation. So Yash was confirming there that no man is good, including him. He says, except the Father. Except the Father. That's all, again, that's Luke 18, verse 19. For here's how I see it. The Father's holiness is superior to the Son. Yahweh's holiness is superior to every being in this universe. He's greater than the Son. So while the Son is without sin, and while the Son is certainly good based on man's standards, he is not good based on Yahweh's standards. Yahweh is on a level all his own. Yahshua said no man was good except the Father. Again, we don't even see the word good here in this passage, but he deviates because he's trying to make this leap. Again, there's nothing here showing that the Father and Son are are the same being. Or another example this man uses is in John 8. John 8, 56, or 58, it says, um, Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. He explains this this way. He says, In Exodus 3, G.O.D. revealed to Moses that the name was Yahweh. Well, we can certainly agree on that point. Translated into English, this literally means I am, or it's a root. This name was sacred. When J.C. used his phrase, the Pharisees knew precisely what he meant. That is, what he was claiming to be the I am of Exodus. If he were merely claiming to have existed in some prior state, he would not have incited the charge of blasphemy. Now, the phrase I am, again, it comes from the root of Yahweh, and that's Hayah. Hayah is also the verb of existence. It means to exist, to be or become, or come to pass. This word is also very broad. It's extremely broad within the Hebrew language. Here's how this word is understood or translated within the King James. Was, come to pass, came, has been, were happened, become, pertained, and better for thee. 
Now, in the context here, Yahshua is simply saying that he existed before Abraham. I believe that this would be cause for the response that he received once they understood. And if you read the passage, they condemn him. They're saying, you're not even 50 years old. The context was age and the fact that Yahshua was making this claim that before Abraham existed, he was. In fact, the word I comes from the Greek genomahi and literally means to come into being, to come into being. Yahshua is simply confirming here that before Abraham existed, that he came into being, that he existed before Abraham. And again, go back and read this passage. Yahshua focuses and the Pharisees focus and the Jews focus on Yahshua's age. He says, look, you're not even 50, and you're making this wild claim that you existed before Abraham. That's the issue here, but there's nothing here saying that the father and son are the same G.O.D. Yahshua doesn't say that the father and I are the same G.O.D. Yahshua doesn't say here that the father and son are the same divinity or the same being. Yahshua doesn't make any of that, those claims. Yahshua simply says, before Abraham existed or before Abraham was born, I existed. That's what we find within this passage. We find nothing about Yahshua and Yahweh or the father and son being of the same substance or the same G.O.D. Now, we also see another example this man provides in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 9. It says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of Jude in a human body. It says, Following the flow of the argument, Paul is encouraging men to not be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies of men. They do not follow after Christ, but after human tradition. Well, you know, that's the problem most face. They, they follow human tradition instead of Messiah. Instead, we need to follow after Messiah. Why is that? Because in Christ, in all the fullness of Elohim, or G-O-D, he says, in human form, we need to have communion with him rather than human rulers and their philosophies. I would agree with almost everything we find from this man, except his conclusion. There's nothing here that shows that the Father and Son are the same being. So the claim here is that Yahshua is the fullness of the, quote, Godhead, and this therefore shows that he and the Father are one G-O-D. That's the assumption here. I want to read this in context, verse 9 and 10, and I'm going to read this from the King James. It says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the, says Godhead, bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. I want to begin by focusing on these three words, fullness, Godhead, and bodily, defining what these words mean. So the word fullness, this word is from the Greek play Roma. It means repletion or completion. The word Godhead is from the Greek theotis and refers to divinity. That's what it refers to, the divinity. And lastly here, the word bodily comes from the Greek somatikos and it means physically. So what is Paul conveying here? What is 
the message. This is a bit confusing. Well, I believe what he's saying is simply this. He's affirming that the person Messiah represents the fullness or the completeness of the divinity or the fullness or completion of Yahweh. I believe that's the message here Paul is saying and conveying. Remember that, and we're going to cover this later, but Yahshua said that he and the Father were one. Yahshua said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, through the Son, we find the fullness of the Father, the completeness of the Father. And as we see in verse 10, through it says, through the Messiah, through the Messiah's completeness, we are made complete. Notice that. Now, why is that important? The word complete in verse 10 is from the Greek word pleroo, which is a root. This is a root word for the word fullness, or the Greek pleroma, that we find in verse 9. They're related. Let's think through this logically for just a moment. If the word fullness or completeness conveys this oneness relationship in verse 9, then based on verse 10, we too must be part of this oneness relationship because we too are complete through Messiah. Now again, we know that we are not one being But this is the insanity that we have to deal with. As Yahshua represents the fullness or completeness of Yahweh, we also represent the completeness of Messiah when we follow him. Same idea. But again, there's nothing here. There's no indication here saying that the Father and Son are the same G.O.D. This is simply absent from the text. Now, the author goes on to argue another point, and this is based on Colossians 1, verse 15. It says there, Christ is the visible image of the invisible G-O-D. So here's how he defines and explains this. He says, this is often a point that Muslims, Jews, and some fringe, we would, by the way, be considered fringe. Christian cults, probably that too, tend to be confused about when we say that J-C is G-O-D. We do not mean that G-O-D is removed from heaven and placed here on earth. That would be a pagan conception of an incarnation, perhaps even idolatrous. Instead, we mean that J.C. is the human version of the invisible G.O.D., which is precisely what Paul says here. G.O.D., the Father, has no form, Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, but the Son does. Christ is the visible image of the invisible G.O.D. He is the human version of G.O.D. What could be more clear? Or not that. Now, this is an important point for those who believe in oneness. Again, this is also an important passage for those who believe in the Trinity. The Father and Son are not separate beings, they will say, because to say this would be idolatrous, it says, pagan, polytheistic. So instead, they say that the Son is simply G.O.D. in human form. That's the understanding. The G.O.D. is, or the Messiah, or the Son of Yahweh is simply Yahweh in human form. Since they quote only half the verse, here I want to I want to read a little bit more here. So it says this, Colossians 1, verse 15. Again, I'm taking it from the King James. It says, Who is the image of the invisible G-O-D, the firstborn of every creature? Context is important. It's important that we understand the fullness of what we're speaking about here. 
Paul confirms here two points. Number one, he says that Yahweh is the image, or Yahshua is the image of the invisible El. Yahshua is the image of the invisible El. The word image here is from the Greek icon, meaning a likeness or a resemblance. So when he says that he is the image, he is a likeness, or he is the resemblance of the invisible El. Now, logically speaking, if we are if we resemble something or somebody, we are not that thing, right? If I say I resemble my daughter, I am not my daughter. That's kind of a bad example, but you know what I mean. Just because a son may resemble his father does not mean that he and his father are the same person. And the same is true for our Father in heaven and our Savior. They are not the same. But we see that Yahshua is and was brought forth in the likeness and the same image as his father. But we know that. Number two, Paul says here that Yahshua is the firstborn of every creature. The word firstborn comes from the Greek protokos, and according to Thayer's means of Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Now the word creature comes from the Greek kistis. Strong's defines this word, quote, as original formation, properly the act by implication, the thing literally, literally, I believe in this way. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the likeness or resemblance of Yahweh and the firstborn of the original creation. Based on the Greek, this is a rendering, I believe, that we would find supported. Again, who is the likeness or resemblance of Yahweh and the firstborn of the original creation. This confirms, number one, that Yahweh and Yahshua are not the same beings. Because again, if you are like, if you resemble something, you are not that thing. This also confirms that they are not co-eternal, as we find essentially taught by oneness, because again, there's one GED that's always existed. And also the Trinity that says that the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are all co-eternal. This passage proves that the Father and Son are not, or the Son is not co-eternal. Therefore, they cannot be the same being. They cannot be the same being. They cannot be the same G.O.D. as most would say. Now, in defense of oneness, this person also shares Matthew 21, verse 9. What does it say there? It says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the L.O.R.D. Hosanna in the highest. So here's how this person explains this passage. He says, the word Hosanna is a way of saying praise and glory and honor in the highest. Or this definitely, this is definitely a form of worship. When realizing who he was, the disciples also worshipped him, Matthew 14, 33. Throughout the New Testament, we see J.C. being worshipped, but he did not rebuke them in their worship. Instead, he received their worship. He allowed them to worship him as though he were G.O.D., so the claim here is that since Yahshua was, quote, worshipped, and there are examples saying that he was worshipped, so based on the fact that he was worshipped, the claim or the assumption or the belief is that he is now and must be G-O-D. Where the key here is to understand the word worship. We must understand the word worship. So here's 
the definition for worship. It is from the Greek proskoneo. Proskoneo. Strong's defines this as meaning to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. To fawn or crouch, that is to prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence, to adore. The Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this in the New Testament by kneeling or prostration to do homage to one or make obeisance, whether in order to express respect or to make supplications. Used, listen, used, it says, of homage shown to men, to men and beings of superior rank. We see here that the word worship or the Greek proskoneo can be viewed in different ways. It can be viewed as adoration or respect toward men or worship or adoration in the formal sense as we do with our father Yahweh. You know, one of the things I often point out is this. We see no examples of people praying to the sun. We see no examples of formal worship to the sun. And for that reason, I don't pray to the sun. I know some do, and I don't know if it's a sin, but we certainly don't see it scripturally. What we see is that everything was always directed to the Father, even Yahshua. How many times did he say he came to do his Father's will? Everything about the Son was directed to the Father. So yes, Yahshua was worshipped. Yes, Yahshua was proskoneo. But Yahshua was not worshipped in a formal sense. I don't believe so. I don't see that here in Scripture. Yahshua was shown reverence. He was shown respect, and he should, and we do. But there is a difference between showing him respect. There is a difference between showing him reverence and worship, worshiping him in a formal sense. We worship Yahweh alone. And we pay homage. We show respect. We show reverence to the Son. That's how I understand this. I don't believe this proves or substantiates or confirms that Yahweh and Yahshua are the same being or the same G.O.D. There's nothing here that would make that conclusion. There's no evidence here showing that the Father and Son are the same G.O.D. Now we see another example, Titus 2, verse 3, uh, 13. It says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great G.O.D. and Savior, J.C. Paul's and Peter's letters typically open with, he says, Grace and peace for Elohim, the Father and our Master, or our Elohim, J.C., indicating clearly a distinction between the Father and the Son. And that's true, they do. Which is, of course, J.C. is a human version of the invisible G.O.D., as I pointed out above. But here, Paul offers deeper insight into the nature of Christ, saying unquestionably that J.C. is the great G.O.D., and a savior. So the claim here is that since Yahshua is called the great G.O.D., he must, he must be the great divinity, or the father, or the great G.O.D., or the one G.O.D. Well, let's consider what we find in the Greek. The word great is from the Greek megas. Thayer's defines this word as predicated of rank, as belonging to a person's eminent for ability, virtue, authority, powers of persons. This is not, does not refer only to the Father. B, things esteemed highly for their importance of great moment, of great weight, importance. And C, a thing to be highly esteemed for its excellence. So we see nothing within this definition that states that this must refer to the divinity, to Yahweh, to the great God. G-O-D alone, there's nothing here that states that. 
This is simply referring and acknowledging that Yahshua was a mighty one, that he was a magistrate, that he was great. And we should all acknowledge that. Remember also that Theos, the great G-O-D, Theos, so the G-O-D is Theos, Theos simply means a, a deity. So Yahshua is a preeminent deity. Yahshua is a preeminent mighty one. Yahshua is a preeminent Elohim. But this does not prove that he and the Father are one. There's nothing here. Yahshua doesn't say, I and the Father are one. There's nowhere we find within Scripture with the exception of one reference, and we'll look at that near the end here. But, but again, there's nothing here. It's important that we understand the full, full meaning of these Hebrew and Greek terms, again, like Elohim and Kyrios and Adonai and Theos. In large part, I believe this is why so many people are confused with the relationship between the Father and Son. They see G-O-D in the English, and they just assume this is referring to the same deity. This is referring to the same mighty one. Well, that's not true, not based on the Hebrew, not based on the Greek. Theos is very broad. Elohim is very broad. Kyrios is very broad. Adonai is very broad. All of them can refer to Yahweh, and all of them can refer to something else. It's important that we understand that. Now, this person also provides another passage here, 1 John 2, verse 2. It says there, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It says, quote, When J.C. was murdered, all of G.O.D.'s wrath went out upon him for the sins of the world. Now, how can that happen? Just think through that logically. If J.C. is G.O.D., and now G.O.D. is dead, how does he do that? He absorbed the punishment that we deserve. Three days later, he rose again. But now could a but how could a finite being absorb sins against an infinite G.O.D.? The answer is that J.C. is a human version of the invisible G.O.D. G.O.D. in the flesh, G.O.D. the Son. He was the Messiah of the Jews. He was worth so much than any more mere man or prophet. Since he was G.O.D., he was therefore able to absorb the infinite penalty that we deserve. But if he was not G.O.D., then he could not have done that. The notion here is that for the Messiah to atone for man's sins, that he had to be G.O.D. If he was not G.O.D., he was not in a position and could not atone for the sins of mankind. You know, what's interesting is that Athanasius, Athanasius, he was the man who really established the Trinity. Trinity. And Athanasius, he made the same argument. He said that the Messiah had to be G.O.D. because only G.O.D. can atone for the sins of mankind. Show me in Scripture where it says that. Show me in Scripture where it says that only Yahweh, only the great I Am can atone for the sins of mankind. Show me that in Scripture. Nowhere do we find such a statement. That is strictly human reasoning. It's faulty reasoning. And this is exactly what led to the Trinity and what led to oneness in part and modalism and monarchianism and all these falsehoods that we find historically speaking. It is simply not true, and this is faulty logic. This is why he believed, again, Athanasius, that the Son was co-eternal, co-equal, and uh, consubstantial. So, 
Again, where in the Bible does it say this where it doesn't? It doesn't. In Matthew 9, verse 6, Joshua said that he was given power to forgive sin. Power to forgive sin. This word power comes from the Greek exosia, and among other things means delegated influence or authority. You see, Joshua was given the authority to forgive sin. Yahweh gave him the authority to forgive sin. It's amazing how people can't read their Bibles. It says that he was given power to forgive sin. Who gave him that power? Did he give himself that power? That doesn't make sense. How can you delegate something to yourself? If you have that, you already have that power. But it says that he was given that power. He was delegated that power by who? Or he was obviously delegated that power by the Father. So that shows that he is not G.O.D., and that he was given this authority to forgive sin. I want to share one more example from this author. Actually, this author doesn't mention this, but I want, to, I want to mention this because many use this as proof of oneness, along with the Trinity, by the way. So John 10, verse 30 says, I and my Father are one. Very short. And from this, they will say that Yahshua is confirming here that he is one with the Father. This confirms oneness. But based on the Greek here, the word one doesn't mean one in person or one in being. It comes from the Greek word heis. According to vines, metaphorically, this word refers to a union or concord. To a union or concord. It refers to unity. We see here from this definition, as it pertains to John 10, verse 30, that the word one refers to the unity of, between the Father and Son. It does not refer to them one in person. It does not refer to them one in being. It refers to them one in unity. And we see this all throughout the evangels. Yahshua said, I only speak those things that the Father's given me. I only do those things the Father's given me. There was unity between the, between the Father and Son. That's what we find here. Nothing indicating that the Father and Son are the same G-O-D. But again, many will use this. But it's important to understand the meaning of the Greek, the word one. I want to share now a few passages, actually several, but I'll go through these probably very, uh, rather quickly, but showing ev evidence that the Father and Son are not the same being. So the first one is 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. It says there, there, who hath, has, or who only has immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So we see here that only the Father has immortality, it says, and that is that he's always existed. He's always existed. That's what it means. He's always been. He's always existed. If the Father and Son were the same G.O.D., why then did not Paul say that both the Father and Son were immortal? But he says very specifically here that, that this being that is immortal has not been seen. For we've seen the Son. This can't refer to the Son. We've seen the Son. It says here that this being within mortality is a being that we have not seen. Or the only being we have not seen, as we know, is the Father. So it claims and confirms here that only the Father has immortality. That only the Father has always existed and been in existence. So this does not prove that the Father and Son are one G.O.D., 
Revelation 3, verse 14 says, And unto the angel of the assembly of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, the beginning of the creation of Elohim. Now, we already read Colossians 1, verse 15. Here it says that Yahshua is the beginning of, of El's creation, or Yahweh's creation. Now, the word beginning here is from the Greek arche. Thayer's defines this word as the person or thing that commences, the first person or thing in a series of leaders. So Yahshua confirms here that he was the first thing in existence. That prior to Yahshua, nothing else existed. Or this proves that Yahweh and Yahshua are not the same, because at some point, Yahshua did not exist. Now let's look at a few more passages here, John. John chapter 10, verse 29. The next few, they showed that the Father is greater than the Son. It says, My Father which gave them... Me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So here Yahshua is speaking this. He says that my father is greater than all, or this would be by default to include him. So if the father is greater than Yahshua, how can they be the same being? How can you be the same being that is greater than you? John 14, verse 28 says, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you, you would, would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, I don't know how anybody gets around that passage. My Father is greater than I. The Father is superior to me. Again, how can you be the same being if that being is superior to yourself? It just logically makes no sense. It's, it's really baffling how they, how they justified the Trinity in oneness. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Messiah, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Messiah is Messiah. Or it doesn't say that. I, several of you looked up. That's good. And the head of Messiah is Yahweh. So again, confirming here that there's a relationship. Confirming here that the Messiah is, is lower, is inferior to the Father. The Son is inferior to the Father. Again, how can you be the same being if you're inferior to that being? How can you be the same being if you are a likeness or a resemblance of that being? Mark 13, verse 32, it says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Now let's think about this for just a moment. If you are the same being, why would you not know this information? But Joshua says here that no man knows his coming, including him, including the Son. He says, only the Father knows when I will return. How can you be the same being without that same knowledge? Obviously, you can. Matthew 11, verse 25. It says, At that time, Yahshua answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, sovereign of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hath revealed them unto babes. He's praying to the Father. Why would you pray to yourself? If you're the same being, if you're the same G.O.D., if you and this other G.O.D. are the same, why would you pray to that G.O.D.? Why would you pray to that G.O.D.? But we find here that Yahshua prayed to his father, showing a distinction between the two. Matthew 
Matthew 26, verse 42, he went again, went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if the cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Why, why didn't he just remove the cup? If he and the father are one, if they are one G-O-D, why would he pray to himself? Luke 23, verse 34, then said Yashua, or Yashua, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his reign and cast lots. So why would he pray? And why would he ask for, for Yahweh to forgive them if, if um, he was G-U-D? Again, it, it really makes no sense at all. And as believers, we need to understand that and be able to provide, by the way, evidence such as what I'm showing you today. We need to be able to point to these passages and say, here's the problem. Here's the issue with what you believe. How does this fit into what he says here? How do you explain your belief with what he says here? It's important that we are able to use and remember these passages. So last one here is Acts 2, verse 32. It says, Then Yahshua hath Yahweh raised up, or this Yahshua hath Yahweh raised up, Whereof we are all witnesses. So think about this. You and the Father are one. You are dead. And the Father raises you from the grave. How does that work? How do you resurrect yourself if you're dead? But here we find evidence that Yahweh rose the Son. So again, if they're the same deity, if they're the same deity, if they're the same divinity as many claim, how do you resurrect yourself when you are dead? Well, you can't. The only way Yahshua was resurrected is, 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 is if the Father was a separate being and was alive and was there to resurrect his own son. Okay, well, I think that is it. So I'm going to say this just real quick, and then we're going to get to our quiz. As believers, it's important that we can prove all things. You know, scripture says that. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. And I would, I always encourage all believers to have a foundational belief of these major doctrines, to be able to counter when someone says, why don't you believe in oneness? Why don't you believe in the Trinity? Why, do you, why don't you eat that ham sandwich? Why don't you do this? Why don't you worship on Sunday? Why don't you keep Christmas? That we can explain why the history what the Bible says. It's important. It really is important. So let's see how well everyone listened. We're going to transition now to the slide. Before that, though, here's the instructions. I would encourage everybody to participate. This is, I don't see the results. I never go and look at the results. So if you get it wrong, I may chastise you behind the pulpit here a little bit. But I'm not going to go back and look at who, who got that wrong. So one easy way is to simply go to your browser and go to pollev.com slash YRM Survey 633. Very simple way of doing this. So you can go online. If you have an iPhone or some sort of smartphone, pollev.com slash YRM Survey 633. You can also do this by text. So the number is 22333. So that's the phone number you would use. And then you type in the message section, you say YRM Survey 633. So that's how you do this via the text. The easiest way is to use the app uh, if you haven't downloaded the app, you're probably too late. But the uh, app, you simply type in Wireham Survey 633. You may be seeing a trend, by the way, Wireham Survey 633. 
That is how you access this with all three options. Okay, so um, hopefully you all are ready and itching here. We're... It's still locked. Okay, or we'll we'll, uh, we'll unlock this. So I will say we have 15 questions. The first one here is, how does the Trinity differ from oneness? The Trinity believes that there is only one G.O.D. The Trinity maintains that there is that there are three personalities between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity only recognizes the Father and Son, but not the Holy Spirit. There are no differences between the two. Okay. There, there's always one. I've given up on the hunter. There's always one. I think they do that to aggravate me behind the pulpit, but that's okay. 94%. I'm going to take 94%. That is a really good number. So I, you listened. You heard this message that the Trinity maintains that there are three separate personalities, and that's how and that's where oneness in the Trinity would differ. Okay, let's keep on going here. What is not true about modalism? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit appear in different modes. The Holy Spirit appeared as the final mode after Pentecost. Modalism was also called Sablanism, and modalism was supported by Athanasius. So which one is this? So what is not true about modalism? So about half of you say that the Holy Spirit appeared. Oh, this is changing now. You see how things, how quickly things change. So 63% right now, they're saying modalism was supported by Athanasius. So that is correct, because we know that Athanasius never supported modalism. Athanasius supported the Trinity. It's an important point to remember. Athanasius, that's an important name to remember, by the way. Athanasius and Arius. Those were the two competing factions during that time. Okay, let's move on. What is not true about monarchianism? It was the dominant view of the Roman church in the first three centuries. There were two forms of monarchianism, dynamic and modalistic. Dynamic monarchianism held that the Messiah was a mere man. It represented an extreme monotheistic view. So what is not true about monarchianism? So this is a pretty good split here. So 33% are saying it was the uh, dominant view that that would not be right. Some are saying that there were not two forms of monarchianism, dynamic and modalistic. The majority is saying that dynamic uh, monarchianism held that the Messiah was a mere man. So uh, this is not good news. Only 33% got this right. Remember that dynamic is the same as adoptionist, and both of those views or positions held that the Messiah, through his great life, was exalted to the stature of son but did not exist prior to that within that relationship. So 34%. So uh, kudos to the 34%, whoever you are. Okay. When did the oneness Pentecostal movement begin? 1859, 1914, 1928, 1956. I see some flipping through their notes. That's really good. Okay. So 95% are saying 1914. By the way, that, I think that's the uh, year my grandfather, he's passed many years ago, but he was born 1914, just realized that. So 19 for a long time ago. So 1914, 83%, I think we're going to call it, it's 83% or 80% is right, it's 1914. 
Okay, the current oneness doctrine began over a dispute of what passage? John 1.1, 1, 1, 1 John 5.7, Matthew 28.19, or Romans 10, verse 13. So what passage was the reason for this oneness belief? So 65, 66, 8, whatever, saying John 1.1, 1, 1, or certainly a passage they would point to. 1 John 5, 7, Matthew 20, verse 19, and Romans 10, verse 13. Okay, so that is not good news. That, that may be the lowest score I've ever seen with a question. So Matthew 20, verse 19. John 1, 1 is an important one. So who, who uh, selected Matthew 20, 19 here? Very good. Very. Everyone else just stay. I'll repeat that part of the message after we're done here. Read that. So anyways, Matthew 28, 19. What do we learn from John 1, 1? The Father and Son are one. The Son is the Word and co-equal to the Father. The Son was with the Father and was a mighty one. The Son did not exist until his birth in the manger. Okay, so let's see here, 80%. So by far the vast majority are saying the Son was with the Father and was a mighty one. And that is growing here to 88%. Father and Son are one. Well, I tell you, whoever put that... I find out who you are. I'm not going to look, but if, but if I find out who you are, we're going to sit down. We're going to review my notes. The Father and Son are one. Okay, 91 percent. That made up for the last one. Okay, very good. All right, moving on. Who acknowledged Yahshua as his master in Elohim? Was that Peter, Paul, Matthew, or Thomas? Who was it? Okay, so the majority of you are saying Thomas could have been Peter. Could have been Paul, right? Maybe Matthew. So which one was it? Peter, Paul, Matthew, or Thomas? There's a lot of indecisiveness going on here, but we're going to call it good here. 65% Thomas is right. Doubting Thomas as we find in Scripture. Okay. What is the meaning of the Greek word theos? Now, I'm, I'm hoping 100%. Here. I know I'm not going to hit it, but 100%. The supreme deity, only descriptive of the Father in the first person of the Trinity. Supreme in authority, that is controller by implication, mister. A deity, especially the supreme divinity, figuratively a magistrate. The mighty one, eternal in nature, infallible of sin. So which one here is the definition for theos? So 72% are saying a deity, especially the supreme divinity, figuratively a magistrate. So let's see here. Let's just give that just a moment here. Okay, we, we can call that. 78% of you are right, 79%. This is the definition. And keep in mind, if you look at this, you see, again, that Theos does not refer automatically to the Father. I really do believe so much of the confusion today is because of the English G-O-D. They see that and they just assume, but they don't realize this word can mean a deity, a divinity, or the supreme divinity, or even a magistrate. Okay, moving on. What Hebrew word corresponds to the great curious? Would that be Elohim, Adonai, Theos, or Eloah? Okay, so some are saying Elohim, most are saying Adonai. Some are saying theos. Now, I'm going to repeat the question. What Hebrew word 
Hebrew word, corresponds to the word curious. What is theos? That's Greek. So we can just stop clicking on theos. <laughs> and um, Adonai is it. That would be the... What did we learn from Romans 10, verse 13? Yahshua was the firstborn of Yahweh's creation. Yahshua was with the Father of creation as, as the Word. Yahshua was without sin and sacrificed his life as a ransom for many. Salvation is also found through Yahshua's name, a name meaning Yahweh is salvation. So what is, what's the answer? Well, I tell you, look at that, 31, 31, 31. There is mass confusion with this question. So which one is it? Romans 10, verse 13. This is a really good passage to remember, Romans 10, verse 13. So 32, 32, 32. We just keep hitting that triple digit there. Okay, I think we're going to call this good. We have majority finally. 41% is right. Salvation is found through Yahshua's name, a name meaning Yahweh is salvation. Okay, moving on. In John 8, verse 58, Yahshua confirms he was without sin. He existed before Abraham. He and his father were one. He was co-equal to the father. That's just sad anybody chose those last two. We, we should all know better. He and his father were one. Or we, we know that's not true. And uh, he was co-equal to the father. That's not true. So, And um, we'll call it a 90%. That's very good, 90%. That's a good number. Good number. That's an A. Okay, what is Paul's message in Colossians 2, verse 9? The person Messiah represents the fullness or completeness of the Father. The name Yahshua represents the salvation of Yahweh. Yahshua was brought into existence as the word of Yahweh. Yahshua represents the second mode or divinity of the Father. So which one is it? Okay, so 50%, half or a little bit more than half, are saying the person Messiah represents the fullness or completeness of the Father. And then we have a tie, literally, just keeps on going, tie, 16, 15. Okay, so we can call it good, I think. So that was, that was a real, um, it's, it's a very confusing passage for many people, but again, I think simply, it simply means that the Messiah represents the fullness of Yahweh. Okay, based on Colossians 1, verse 15, which statement is not? Is not true. Yahshua was the firstborn of every creature, Yahshua is the invis- image of the invisible El. Yahshua is the father in human form. Yahshua was made in the likeness of the father. Now, I was assuming, hoping that we were going to see 100% when we sw- transitioned that slide. 63% were saying Yahshua is, is not the father in human form, and they would be right. The Son is not the Father in human form. The Son is not the supreme divinity, as some might say. Okay. According to 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, who only has immortality? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or all of the above? Okay, so the Father. Some are saying the Holy Spirit. I think I'm going to give this message next week. Just... We'll get that other 50%. Okay, so 67% are right. The Father, some will blame it on technology, maybe a little bit on technology, but okay. 
Um, I think we have one more. Which passage confirms that the Father is superior to the Son? John 10, verse 29, John 14, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, or all of the above? Okay. So we're going to play this out for just a few seconds. We'll see how this uh, goes here. So 26% are saying John 10, 29, 7 at 14, 28, all of the above at 70%. Okay, we can call this at all of the above. Now, the good news is if you chose any one of these options, you were right, right? But you were more right if you chose D. You are the most right if you chose D. So hopefully that was fun. Hopefully it was a good reminder, refresher. I uh, pray that, again, we all understand these things that we really seek. I think it's important that we dig into the word, that we understand the word and are able to defend the word. And that's uh, including, as we've uh, talked about today, this relationship between the Father and Son. And with that, may Yahweh bless you.